almost a month into conference play and you know we've got another huge week of upsets and big upcoming games welcome to the latest edition of the a10 talk podcast as usual i'm your host sam basil alongside daniel frank daniel how you doing this week doing good enjoying my last week of winter break before i head back to mason for my final semester so gearing up ready to go ready to talk some a10 hoops as always all right, so we've got a lot to talk about today, a lot of big games, a lot of big games we saw, a lot of big big games coming up, talking about some big players that might be, you know, uh, big names coming up in this year's NBA draft, as well as some, uh, some, some brand new news from uh, just the NCAA as a whole. Uh, just about two hours ago, ESPN reported that the NCAA has uh, agreed to ratify a new constitution. So for any of you who are really interested in the, uh, the political aspect of the NCAA, this, this is a topic for you. Um, it looks like a lot of this stuff, I mean, I don't know, Daniel, if you got a chance to really read a lot of the uh, proposals that were on the table, but it looks like a lot of this constitution, a lot of these new meetings uh, have, have been focused around uh, name, image, and likeness deals, which is a surprise to no one. Uh, you know, reading what uh, ESPN kind of has reported on the, the, the biggest points of this constitution, uh, the NCAA basically, and as well as its member schools, reaffirmed the fact that uh, these athletes should retain amateur, you know, quote unquote amateur status to a certain degree, and that, you know, their mission is academics first, which, you know, <laughs> but that's relevant for things like the olympics and whatnot so of course and you know i think the biggest reason why they want to take that stance and also re-cement that stance is to basically say this is why if athletes are going to be making money in college it must be through name image and likeness endorsement that they seek on their own rather than getting direct compensation from the schools so daniel as a whole, what do you were you surprised by this? Uh, do you think this is a good move for the NCAA, or do you think you know it's kind of just maintaining the status quo? I'm not overly surprised by it. I think it, it sounds to me a lot like the NCAA trying to do the most they can to cover their own hind and you know make sure they're giving the student athletes a little bit because their hands were forced to. Um, but to me, it just sounds like you know they're. The, the amateur status is important, as I mentioned, for things like NCAA or sorry, for Olympic eligibility, especially for sports like NHL, where folks get drafted and then you can stay in college after you get drafted and maintain your amateur status. And you know, there's some funky roles with international competitions so for that perspective. You know, that is relevant. But all in all, it sounds pretty NCAA typical stuff. And before we got we uh, started recording this podcast, you mentioned a uh, specific part of those meetings that was brought upon by the A-10. So could you kind of explain to our listeners what that what that proposal was? Yes, yeah, so last week I, I mentioned that the Atlantic 10 Conference had actually brought forth to the NCAA a proposal for if teams are short on players due to things like COVID restrictions and whatnot, that they would be allowed to play uh, players who are planning to redshirt this season or currently redshirting um, for a limited number of games so that they could get games played. Uh, and the the deal was supposedly endorsed by a number of different conferences around the country. It sounded like it got some traction going and then the NCAA just shut it down completely and said, Nope, not doing it. End of discussion. Um, so it sounds like a non-starter from here on out. And 
at this point, we just hope to get as many games played as we can. Knock on wood. You know, we've been having some good luck recently with, you know, getting games played. There's only one A10 women's game and no men's games postponed in the last week. So we'll just hope that trend continues. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I want to, you know, be on the side of the Atlantic 10 and, and, and have everything be for the benefit of teams and players, I can kind of see why the NCAA would shoot down an offer like that. Because if you have guys, you know, maybe, you know, removing their red shirt for a certain game and then going back to being a red shirt player, uh, you know, uh, in the next game, it's going to get really, you know, it's going to get really complicated and really confusing, I'm sure, for a lot of teams. You know, especially like we've, we've talked about, uh, you know, the way that eligibility has been changed around the pandemic has been affecting, you know, NCAA records. It's given a lot of players extra time to maybe chase those career milestones. Outside of the fact of whether or not that's a good or bad thing, uh, I'm sure the NCAA would like to avoid any more major, you know, stipulations in terms of in terms of eligibility. So, kind of moving on into uh, outside of the NCAA as a whole, back into A10 play, there were some pretty crazy upsets this week, uh, especially especially concentrated uh, towards the beginning of the week. You know, I think we're going to be moving back to our usual, you know, George Mason Fordham podcast. Uh, part of the night here and you know I really want to talk about George Mason's Monday game against George Washington which you know their first game in a 10 play after taking a long pause and after after all we've said about about George Washington this season about how they're how they might you know just be looking forward to next year uh Daniel what happened on Monday I don't have an answer for you you know, I, I don't want to give Mason too much. I don't want to bash them too much, but I also don't want to give them too much credit. I mean, the first 10 odd minutes of the game, Mason looked like a team coming back from COVID pause. They were down 10 to GW. And then they got a run going, made like a four point game at the half. And then they took a significant lead. They led by 13 points in the second half. They were rolling. They had this beautiful sequence with Xavier Johnson and Malik Henry where Xavier Johnson had two behind the back dribbles and a behind the back pass and a beautiful dunk right in front of me. Cause I was actually at this game. Um, and the bench was great. The energy was great. And then with six minutes left, something just changed. And they, I don't know if they just ran out of gas, the legs got tired, you know, you know, whatever, but GW found a way to turn it around. It started with, you know, that Joe Bamisil dunk, which was number two on sports center the next morning over Malik Henry and, Boy, I saw that all the way from the way that, what, James Bishop had driven down the lane and kicked it out. And I could just see from where I was sitting, Joe had a clear path to the basket and a full head of steam. I didn't realize that Malik was going to try to block it. I thought he was going to just let him go because it looked like he had that big a lane. And then that was honestly probably one of the most ferocious dunks I have ever seen in person. The only thing that comes even close to it is I want to say like the 2014 season, 15 season, VCU's Mo Ali Cox had a ferocious dunk. And I want to say it was over like Kevin Larson or Yuta or somebody in like the first five minutes of a game. And that was, I mean, but this was like that level of like just absolutely ferocious dunk. And it gave GW the energy they needed. And once they got the ball rolling and they, they finished the game 18 to four run and you know, credit to GW. Mason did not play well down the stretch. They did not defend well. What ended up being the game-winning basket from uh, Joe on the drive off an inbounds pass, you know, was not well defended by Xavier Johnson. But credit GW getting to the rim, getting downhill, being tough to guard. And, you know, they wanted it more at the end, and it showed. And they deserve the win. 
Yeah, and so Joe Bam, so his stat line against Mason, pretty pretty impressive, pretty, you know, a great all-around performance. 26 points, six rebounds, two assists, a steal, and two blocks. You know, pretty much all over the floor. And, you know, he's had some pretty great games all season. I mean, you, you know, you look at that game against Maryland, that even though they lost, I feel like people were really talking about him, uh, you know, going up, up against, you know, former A-10 great guard uh, Fats Russell. And so – as a sophomore, you know, Joe Bamsell is having these great performances. Is he going to be the player that George Washington kind of looks to over the next maybe two, three years to kind of build around? And, and B, is he going to kind of, you know, maybe be the, the starting point of kind of an upturn in Jamie and Christian's time at George Washington? For GW's sake, I hope so. Um, the biggest if is if he stays because he certainly has division, uh, I keep saying division one, he certainly has power five talent. It seems, I mean, basically he came, I think Ricky Lindo, James Bishop and Joe Bamazo all came to GW coming down from power five level thinking they want more playing time. They want to be the guy on a team. And I'm not sure for JB's long-term success, all three are going to stick around. Um, it's worth noting at this GW game that Ricky Linda was out with an injury, it was not COVID, but an actual old fashioned injury. Um, and he missed the St. Joe's game on Wednesday as well. Um, and I think just for GW's long-term success, like you mentioned, it should be Joe because he has shown ability to, I mean, yes, James Bishop has shown ability to fill up the basket with points and points, but he's not very efficient in doing so. I mean, he's, he's a volume scorer, but he's not an efficient scorer. Joe is not the most efficient guy, certainly, but he's definitely a lot more efficient than Bishop, I think. And it definitely helps GW, especially in those key moments. I mean, you know, there's that, that video that's circulated Twitter for a year and a half now of the James Bishop just chucked up three in the final seconds against William & Mary versus what Joe did against Mason. It's just, oh, why don't we just drive the lane? We're down one. We don't need a three with five seconds left, you know? So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how the season progresses as, especially if Lind- if Ricky Lindo's out long-term, you know, how the workload is balanced between the two. It's funny that you bring up that clip because I actually saw that for the first time about 45 minutes ago. Oh, that was the first time I watched <laughs> yeah. that game. Oh, God. <laughs> it was rough. It was rough, I got to say. It reminded me a lot of, uh, you know, I, I know you say you don't watch a ton of NBA, but uh, about 10, maybe 10 years ago, Trevor Ariza, uh, when he was on the, the, I believe the Toronto Raptors hit a, hit a three pointer. Uh, I'm sorry. He did not hit a three pointer. It was a, it was a three pointer to win the game. And it was from, uh, the right corner and he, he hit it in a way that it brushed up against the, the net as it came down. So from one side of the arena, it looked like it went in and half the arena was going crazy, including the broadcast crew. And uh, the other half of the arena, you know, started packing, packing up and going home. Uh, for any of you who, who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, Google or, or punch in on YouTube, Trevor Ariza dagger, because that's what the announcer said, right? As the uh, shot looked like it went in. It's one of the funniest clips you'll, you'll probably see in the lot from the last like 10 years of NBA basketball. But anyway, so moving on to another big upset, this time on Tuesday night, uh, there was a big A-10 slate, you know, Fordham taking on uh, Richmond, uh, Davidson in a really heated match between matchup between VCU. I think they only came, came out of that one winning by one point to extend their win streak to 14 games. But 
the biggest game I think that 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 drew a lot of headlines and drew a lot of attention was Dayton's 18 point win over St. Bonaventure. Uh, you know, Deron Holmes, 20 points, uh, Elvis, 14 points, and you know, only one player on St. Bonaventure scored in, in, in double figures. That was Jalen Attaway with 15 points. Daniel, um, kind of a two-part question here. With that loss to Dayton, is Bonnie completely out of the bubble conversation? And with the win over Bonaventure, does Dayton re-enter that bubble conversation? That's a great question. It's a great two-part question. As far as Bonnie being out of the bubble, it's really difficult to say because I've always felt like their numbers are weird because their net ranking, even before this loss, was weirdly low. They were like in the hundreds and they didn't have like a truly bad loss to their name. And yet, well, other than what they had the one bad one at home, but like one bad loss you could usually live with. It's hard to say with this team. Bonna basically, I think what I said last week on the podcast was they're in a show me week. I need them to show me, you know, with the eye test that they look good. They can put together games and put, you know, some wins together. And they did not pass that test. I mean, pretty, pretty convincingly. I mean, it was a weird turnaround of how they just absolutely demolished VCU on Friday, last Friday, and then turned around and then just absolutely got humiliated by Dayton. Um, as far as Dayton goes, it's possible that Dayton could get back in. Those, those early losses are really going to haunt them. I think their record is like they'd be like 11 and three if you take away those three losses or something like that. Chris Pyle tweeted out that. Um, they're just a very bizarre team and yet their wins over Kansas are only going to get better and that Miami wins looking even better too. So they've got some decent resumes on it or wins to their resume. And then the most interesting game that they have will be the last game of the regular season. It's a home game on March 5th for Dayton against Davidson's the only matchup this season. They beat Davidson. That would help. It would definitely be a quad one win. Um, assuming Davidson doesn't face plant along the way. Um, you know, it's possible. I think we'll just have to see what they do. I, they just need to make sure that they don't drop a stinker to Mason. That's the first step for them. But not to be putting up excuses for Bonaventure because I, you know, it's, it's something that I'm kind of wrestling with right now, but you know, recently on, on, on a podcast I was on yesterday, uh, someone said that Bonaventure uh, really, has not looked like the team that we were promised early on this season. And while I do agree that, you know, by the numbers, by their record, and especially with this performance on Tuesday, they're definitely not that team we were promised. But for me, they, they so closely parallel, in my opinion, uh, last year's St. Louis team, because St. Louis was on such a great track. They had just, you know, snuck into the top 25 and they go on a month long COVID pause. And, you know, the Bonnie's, you know, just getting out of that COVID pause. But the question here is now Dayton, you know, they had that, they had that very close when they had to barely, they barely just got, just beat LaSalle in overtime. Uh, then they went on and smoked VCU. Is, is, is Bonaventure too far out? And uh, have they, are they too far back in to, you know, playing again for, for, uh, for, for me to make an excuse for them for this loss to Dayton? Maybe pop. Uh, it's hard to say with COVID pauses because teams this year seem to be responding a little bit differently to COVID pauses than they did last time. I think it's a, a good part of that is 
when a team goes on pause, it's not like they, the entire team shuts down for what, 10, 14 days, whatever it was last year. You know, some folks, as long as they're not like close contact, they don't test positive, whatever, you know, can still practice, can still be in the gym. So it's not like the entire program is shut down for 10 days. But, you know, but the same reason I, I how do I excuse Mason's loss to Jeb? It is their first game back. Maybe I'll give them a pass on that. But, I don't know if Bonna gets that excuse or not. I think this is just a symptom of, of a larger problem for St. Bonaventure of they've just been terribly inconsistent this year. And I think a large part of that has to do with their bench, which they have none of. I think this is the first time and maybe the whole season that they had a bench player play 10 minutes or more in a game. Um, you know, I, I think that's their big Achilles heel. And especially when EDS, maybe when you're coming off a of Copa pause, that will, you know, they want to play your bench more to, you know, if guys get winded and whatnot, and maybe that is part of why they're losing right now, but it's not a good look. Yeah. So, you know, looking at their, looking at their upcoming schedule, let me just pull that one up here. They they're playing Duquesne on Friday, which I think they, they, they absolutely have they to better win. win. And then they play George Mason on the 26th, uh, followed by St. Joe's on the 29th and then Davidson on February 1st. In, in that three-game stretch, maybe specifically against with, with that George Mason game too, because you know you're a George Mason guy. Uh, what are you look? What should the Bonnies be looking to do? Should they be blowing? Should they just be looking to blow everybody out? To, you know to get back into that conversation. They definitely need to blow Duquesne out. That's for darn sure. If Josh O'Dero, this is a big question mark with Mason that we didn't mention before. Is Josh O'Dero did not play for Mason against GW, so that was a part of it. If Josh O'Dara is still out for this St. Bonaventure game, which they have another, they Mason plays on Saturday against Dayton. Was that a COVID play. issue or was that a, is that it's a, an, it's a knee and back issue. Um, so it's an old fashioned injury. So Mason plays Saturday against Dayton, Monday against St. Joe's and then Wednesday against St. Bonaventure. So three home games in what, five days there. Wow. So we should know by the time we get to Bona, you know, what Josh's situation is going to be. There's no reason why, if Josh Oduro is not playing, Oshun does not drop 25 points on Mason, just because Mason does not have an answer at the center position. That was pretty abundantly clear when Hunter Dean was destroying Mason. Um, nothing against Hunter Dean. Love the guy. But, you know, Oshun should be able to eat his lunch, you know, if it's Malik Henry guarding him or if it's Blake Jones guarding him. Bonin needs to just really... I think they need to prove to themselves and prove to the rest of us that they still need to be taken seriously. I think they really need to make a statement here on Friday night and they really should punish Mason as well. I mean, Mason's got two of these next three games are really going to be tough for Mason. I think it's fortunate for them that they have the St. Joe's game implanted in the middle. Cause that was a rescheduled game from earlier that Mason's not going to start 0 three. Cause they're probably going to lose to both Bonnet and Dayton. If we're being realistic, they should get a win against St. Joe's. So kind of moving on, you know, outside of, outside of St. Bonaventure, let's, let's talk a little bit, you know, looking way ahead past the season and, and you know, into NBA draft uh, territory. So the A-10, I think, you know, as, as, as ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski uh, describes, describes in the Mighty Atlantic 10 Conference, you know, I think they've been pretty solid in, you know, consistently putting in, you know, one to two draft picks, uh, you know, every, every year or so. I mean, last year, obviously we had, we had Bones Highland and this year it looks like the big draft draft pick coming out of the A-10 will be Richmond's Tyler Burton. 
uh, in his last two games, uh, you know, I was, I was at, I was at their last game, Richmond's last game against Fordham on Tuesday, where they, they, you know, they really took control of that game. They won uh, 83 to 70 forced 22 turnovers on the Rams. That was the Fordham season high turnovers. Uh, you know, Jacob Gilliard had 31 points against Fordham, but you know, with two scouts apparently in the building uh, at Rose Hill gym, uh, it took a long time for Tyler Burton to kind of get going. He didn't, he didn't score a single point in the first half. Uh, I believe he only had like three rebounds and then he only finished the game with seven points. And then uh, in their previous game against Davidson, there was also rumblings that there were some scouts in the area and uh, he only finished with nine. So, I mean, obviously we're not players, you know, we're not, we're, we're not like that. We're reporting on these teams, but we're not really, uh, you know, as inside, you know, in the, in the works with these teams as, as much as we want to be. But Daniel, do you think, you know, players do get rumblings of, of these scouts being in the building? Do you think they're told beforehand or they find out at some point uh, that that might, you know, cause some sort of nerves or some sort of like, you know, some case of the yips, you know, as, as, as they say for a lot of players. I can tell you for sure. They definitely do. Um, especially because the, the, whatever the home team's SID is, is usually the one that sets up, you know, with coordinating when scouts are coming and where they get to sit and all that. But if they're coming officially, if they're unofficially and they're coming as a fan in the stands, then they may not always know. But um, I know Mason had a couple of years ago, some scouts for uh, a couple of different players. Um, and we always knew because they had a credential card that was, you know, said what team they were from. So that definitely probably has an impact on guys. Um, Cause I mean, it, it would have to, it's, I, for a lot of these guys playing in the NBA is their dream. And the Atlantic 10 has shown for both the NBA and WNBA as a, a way to get there. You don't have to go to a power five school to get to the professional leagues. If that is your goal, um, and I think, you know, it's, it's getting so close to their dreams. Some guys get a little nervous sometimes, but I think that's a natural response. But, you know, a, a guy like Tyler Burton, you mentioned, you know, I think he's a guy that can really be a good utility player in the NBA. I mean, the most, he's probably not going to be a star. He's never going to be, you know, an Anthony Davis, a LeBron James, obviously. But looking at a stat line for this season, 17.1 points a game, 7.2 rebounds, what sticks out to me the most is 49% shooting from the field. I mean, we're tail end of January, and this is a guy that's, you know, playing some volume minutes for Richard, obviously. To have that kind of efficiency, I mean, who wouldn't take, you know, a guard that can shoot 50% from the field? I mean, that is efficiency that you'd like to have on any team to be able to bring it off your bench if you're an NBA team. You know, give you some high-quality minutes, get you some points while your guys are resting. I think that's definitely an asset for an NBA team that they might be interested in. Yeah, no doubt. And, you, you know, you mentioned the fact that, you know, a guy like Tyler Burton might never be a star. But uh, I think as we've seen with a lot of recent uh, A-10 alumni in, in the NBA, especially with Bowens Highland on the Nuggets, you know, they don't they don't get the most minutes. They don't score the most points, but they kind of in their own way become some some sort of fan favorite. Uh, you look at, you know, Highland, he's right now on the, on the Denver Nuggets. And I feel like every once in a while when he's got a great performance, you know, he's, he's blowing up, you know, Denver Nuggets, social media, BCU fans are always ready to rally behind him. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of just become those sleeper picks. And I think that's exactly what a player like Burton should become in the NBA. And so, you know, moving forward, kind of switching over to the women's side of things, 
you know, we've, we've talked a lot about UMass basketball. We've talked a lot about some other programs in the, in the A-10 that are really, you know, kind of making waves in the conference and, and are probably, you know, strong picks for making this year's NCAA tournament. But let's talk about, you know, Fordham, uh, specifically with Kendall Haramaya. Uh, you know, our own our own Nathan Strauss did a, did a really great write-up on A10 Talk that everyone should check out. Uh, basically, a sit-down interview with Kendall Haramiah, who uh, just, you know, crossed the 1,000-point threshold at, 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 at Fordham University. So, Daniel, can you kind of talk about, you know, Haramiah's place on, on, on Fordham's team this season and, you know, in the Coach Gately system that, that she's been a part of for so long? Yeah, absolutely. I actually got the the privilege to see Fordham in person uh, last week when they played at George Mason. Um, ironically, Aramaya didn't have that great of a night. She only had four points and six boards, um, but she had seven assists. So even a night like that when, you know, she's not having her best performance, she's always still finding ways to contribute. And I think that's so indicative of, of how Stephanie Gately has built this Fordham team top to bottom. I mean, there's there's been nights where she's been that high-volume scorer that they need her to be, um, you know, she's filled in, you know, in the, you know, double digits quite frequently. She had a really big night. She 29 at Seton hall back in November. Um, she's just one of a number of tremendous players on Fordham, but what makes her so special, I think is her ability to adapt to any game situation. You know, she, she has a larger build, which makes her a pretty versatile player. So she's not, you know, like a point guard. She's got, the ability to play a four or five if you really need her to. She can handle the ball. You know, she. we talk a lot in modern modern day basketball about, you know, positionless basketball. Um, and she's someone that absolutely can play every position on the floor and do it really at a high level. And uh, you talk about that game against Seton Hall and especially um, – and also Fordham played Notre Dame this year in South Bend as part of their non-conference schedule. How important and and, you know – how much of a t- how much of uh, Fordham's non-conference schedule is a, is a testament to Coach Gately and you know her passion for you know making sure that her her team you know has has the hardest opponents possible that they can play that that gives them the best pe- preparation they can for the NCAA tournament. Oh, it, it says a tremendous about about Stephanie Gately. I, I talked to her before the season at, at media days um, and asked her about you know the non-conference schedule and you know, the opportunities that it would provide them. And I think one of the things that Fordham has done that sets them apart from the rest of the Atlantic 10 is being able to get, yes, power five schools on the schedule, but actually getting them to come to your building. You know, there's a lot of talk in the non-conference this year across the league that, you know, we want to schedule tougher. We want to actually win some games in the non-con for a change against these power five schools. But really, other than Dayton, Fordham has been the team year in and year out that's gotten true home and home signed, you know, with schools like Notre Dame that were the, I think they played at Rose Hill two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, they got Michigan State to come in this year. They've had other big names as well. And that's something that is is really important for players because it helps with recruiting. When you're getting schools like that, that actually will come to your building, you know, it creates a different vibe, a different environment. And it really creates a lot of momentum. I mean, that Michigan State win that Fordham had this year was really big for them. Um, and it really propelled them. They, you know, played, they lost two out of three in Cancun and, um, you know, the loss to Baylor, certainly no one will fault them for not, you know, Arizona state's not a bad loss either. Probably their best one is Princeton, which may sound weird to folks. If you know, follow the Ivy league that closely on, especially on the women's side, but Princeton's a really, really good team. They're a top 50 net, I believe. Um, 
And Fordham certainly has the ability to get an at-large bid still. They, they really can't afford too many losses in conference play. They already dropped one to LaSalle at home, which was a bit of a stinker. It was coming off a of COVID pause, yes. But you really want to make sure you're winning as many games as you can. And Fordham's got um, some really big opportunities coming up shortly where they can, you know, get a UMass team, get a Dayton team, and that will really help, you know, with their, with their resume. And so uh, in those upcoming games against UMass and Dayton, uh, what, what are you looking what – what, what should fans be looking for in terms of matchups? And, you know, what, what's gonna ha- what do you think is going to happen in these games that's going to really, you know, set the tone for the A-10 women's tournament? You know, it's interesting. I, I really think it's going to come down a lot of it to what happens around them um, because I think the biggest surprise of the last week was UMass dropped two games. So UMass is now two and two. Now, granted, a lot of that, I think, is because UMass, as I mentioned last week, came on off a of COVID pause. And like it sounds like the entire team had COVID with like, pretty nasty symptoms. And it seemed like it really knocked the wind out of their sails. Um, and their losses were to a, a Rhode Island team and Dayton. So the two undefeated teams left in the conference are their losses. So they're not bad losses. Um, they played four games in eight days. Um, and they, they're going to get Rhode Island back this week, coming week in, uh, on Wednesday at the Mullen Center. So they get a return game for that pretty quickly. Um, so it's really going to come down to, I think, kind of what happens with the rest of the league around them, too. I think right now you've got three teams that have started to pull away from the Packers, Rhode Island, Dayton, and Fordham. UMass is absolutely a top-four team in this league. They're probably a top-two team. I think as more teams start to play each other, we're going to kind of see the standings even out a little bit. Um, and UMass will obviously not be in ninth place by the time you know we get to the end of February. And we've got some interesting games actually coming up this weekend too. Uh, as I mentioned, um, we've got Dayton plays Fordham this coming Sunday um, on ESPNU at noon. So there's no A-10. I think there's only one A-10 men's game on Sunday. I think it's like 2 o'clock. It's slew and UMass for the second time in a week. No one cares. Sunday appointment television, before the NFL playoffs get going, your appointment television is noon on Sunday, Dayton, Fordham. It's going to be a tremendous matchup. You have two of the top guards in the conference, and Anna DeWolf going up against Jenna Giacconi, and all one through five on both rosters are just so unbelievably talented and stacked it's going to be some really great basketball. Well, and you know, that's, that was actually going to be uh, how I segued into our final portion. So that's a great women's slate this weekend that everyone should be checking out. But now on the men's side, what games are you looking forward to uh, most this weekend? And, you know, now that you mentioned it, that that's that slew UMass game on Sunday, right after they play, uh, you know, we're recording this on Thursday. So right after they play tonight, that's, that's pretty close for a back-to-back in a 10 play. Wouldn't you say? I think the game tonight, tonight being Thursday, was the rescheduled one. I think, if I'm not missing, one of the two was a rescheduled. It, it, tonight. Gotcha. There we go. I have it right here. Yeah. Uh, I believe it was originally supposed to be earlier in the month. But it, it shakes out interestingly for both of them, for sure. So other than uh, that, that you know, that that back-to-back, what are, you, what are you looking forward to this weekend on the men's side? I mean, I know I'll be at uh, Davidson uh, Fordham. That's going to be a great one to see. But uh, is there anything else that you'll be looking forward to? Yeah, I had two written down here. And it, it takes a little bit away from it now, now that we have the unfortunate news of uh, what Forum's best player leaving the program, Antonio Dye Jr., their leading scorer. Um, 
which you I'm sure want to talk a little bit more about in a minute. Um, But I still feel like this is a little bit of a trap game for Davidson. They've had two really emotional games back to back um, in beating Rhode Island or sorry, Richmond at the buzzer and then VCU pretty much at the buzzer two games. It came down to the wire Fordham as a team. I, I tweeted this out the other night is really a team that no one wants to play. I mean, they gave, a really tough game to, to slew the other night into Richmond. Um, they're just not a fun out for anybody right now, which was not always the case for them. And it's going to be interesting to see how they respond. You know, losing Dye Jr. obviously is going to take a lot of their offense away from them. But still, I think this, this has the potential to be a trap game. I'm not necessarily calling it an upset. Um, but it will be interesting to see kind of how that plays out. The other game I have here is Mason Dayton. I think... As I mentioned earlier tonight, look, Dayton can still get in the at-large conversation, but the worst thing that they could do is drop an absolute stinker to Mason. And on the flip side, Mason needs to respond after they've had, what, five days to stew on this GW loss this past Monday and MLK Day. You know, they, they it will help to get Josh back if they do get him back. I honestly don't know what his, his status is going to be. But the worst thing Dayton could do is drop a stinker the same way that Bonna beat the snot out of ECU and then dropped a bad one to Dayton. So I, I keep my eye on those two games. What do you have your eye on this coming weekend, Sam? Yeah. So outside of, outside of Davidson Fordham, I've definitely, I've honestly got my eye on GW Rhode Island. Uh, I was, I was probably the most entertained I have been watching GW basketball on Monday and Rhode Island has kind of, uh, kind of been kind of a sneaky team. That's kind of been rising up through the ranks in the A-10 this season. So I would really love to see both how both of them match up against each other. Uh, in terms of the slate overall, outside of, you know, the games I want to watch, I do have to say uh, I'm very happy that these games are a bit more spaced out than we've seen in some of the weekday slates. Maybe uh, the A-10 has been, been listening to the podcast and heard me and you complaining about, about uh, you know, games being too bunched up close together. Um, but, you know, talking about that Davidson Fordham game, specifically with Antonio Day, um, right before we got on this podcast, I'm sure a lot of people have seen on Twitter that Antonio Day, uh, you know, after that announcement that Fordham, that, that, that Day would be withdrawn from the university and that no information, no more information would be provided, uh, Day has allegedly uh, entered the transfer portal. And, you know, with the transfer portal being very weird this season, you know, there's a possibility that if he does get picked up, by another school, there's a possibility he could start playing for that school this season. I don't think I, I have a hard time seeing that happening, but um, you know, in terms of Fordham being able to adjust from day, obviously uh, there's no way that you could say right now that Fordham will be better without him. Obviously, you know, he was, he was a great player. You know, he, he was their leading scorer. Um, but that being with that being said, uh, you know, you look at Fordham's performance on Tuesday against Richmond, and they actually had their best shooting performance from three-point range of the entire season. They shot 41% from three. Uh, Kyle Rose, Antrell Charlton had a, had both had great performances. They hit some great shots. Josh Navarro as well. Um, so I think right now what you're going to be seeing with Fordham, like you like you saw against St. Louis and you saw against Richmond, is that Fordham's really just really going to be uh, experimenting with their guard rotation that we've seen so far this season. Um, you know, you've got some young guys that I think are ready to step up like Ahmad Harrison, who I think is, is, is good. He brings a lot of energy to the team, but uh, you know, he's just got, he's just got to take some time to refine his skill set. You know what I mean? A lot, of, a lot of the stuff that's good about him right now 
doesn't show up on the score sheet. Um, but I think Kyle Neptune's one of Kyle Neptune's number one priorities should just be, you know, working on him and getting him into the all around player that I really think he could be. So right now I think, you know, it sucks to see day go, but I think there are still plenty of positives for Fordham fans to be looking forward to, you know, this season is not a wash just because day is day is no longer with the program. I mean, I think honestly the season could end today for Fordham and it would be a tremendous step forward overall. Um, what, what they've been able to do over there has, has caught the attention of uh, John Rusty tweet about Fordham being nine and five. I mean, that hasn't happened. And you can probably attest to this, Sam, that hasn't happened for Fordham men's basketball in a long time. No, I think the last time John Rothstein tweeted about Fordham uh, since that tweet where he said there's something special brewing in the Bronx was when uh, Jeff Neubauer left the program. So, you know, I was going to guess an epitome of brutality tweets. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, if I could, if I could, you know, give some praise from one blog to another, I'm, a, I'm always, I've always been a big fan of, of mid-major madness's presence on Twitter uh, with Cameron Morris and all those guys. So, I mean, and they've been talking about Fordham a lot too. So I think, I think people are ready. I think people are ready and they've wanted to see a good Fordham team for a long time. And I think what we've seen from this Fordham team is really indicative of what, what Kyle Neptune, what Kyle Neptune can do to take that next step. And so, you know, no matter what, I, I, I think it's a great time to be a Fordham basketball fan. We're on the Fordham hype train here at a yeah. Talk. Uh, yeah, the A10 Talk podcast slash the George Mason Fordham podcast. <laughs> but, you know, I think with that, you know, with our, we, we've covered Mason and we've covered Fordham. So I think it's time to wrap this one up for another episode of the A10 Talk podcast. As always, Sam Basil, Daniel Frank. Uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter at A10 Talk. Check out A10Talk.com for all your favorite updates from the 14 best teams in college basketball. And we'll see you next week.